Welcome to the podcast of ideas. What you're about to hear is a recording from the Academy of Ideas lockdown debate. Coronavirus and the media is gotcha journalism the new normal. This took place on the 28th of April. In the chair is me, Ella Whelan. Welcome officially, everyone, uh, to tonight's discussion held by the Academy of Ideas called Coronavirus and the Media is Gotcha Journalism the New Normal. Um, a quite remarkably, not to blow our own trumpet, but prescient uh, debate, not least because it seems like things have just completely kicked off in terms of a discussion about the relationship with the media and the government, the media and the public. Uh, over the last two days, you've had this slightly surreal experience of um, the government press conferences taking uh, message, uh, questions from the public, and, and that's really rankled some members of the uh, media and some journalists feel this is a squeeze on their time. Uh, others are talking about the, uh, the need for expertise when you're asking questions to the government. There's what started off as being quite a... Um, uh, a good relationship between journalists and uh, cabinet ministers has turned significantly frostier over the last uh, few weeks. And there is this, this is quite hostile and feeling among it. And adding on to that, it'll be no surprise to many of you that there are, as a certain sentiment among sections of the public of the media being out of touch, of them not asking the right questions, of the reason we put the, the um, word gotcha journalism in that title is because when I talk to lots of people, they say this is all journalists want to do now. They want to get headlines. They want to get that salacious scandal, that whistleblowing uh, moment, rather than actually thinking about more in-depth investigations or um, intellectual questions. Of course, on the other side of that is the fact that us all being cooped up at home or not being able to engage in the same way that we usually would brings the problem of one of the main reasons we interact, as it were, with and get information from government is through the media. So we really are reliant on them to a certain extent at the moment. Um, and I'm, you know, being a member of somewhat of the media, I'm nervous uh, about the uh, growing problems with the sentiment around uh, hostility to the media and you can sort of feel somewhere in the distance calls for further regulation of the media and is that a problem so this is a this is a massive question and we've got a good amount of time to talk about it and there's been recent examples you know the the sunday times expose the guardian investigation into the dominic cummings being at the sage meetings all of these things sort of arriving um, with little to no fanfare and and you know, essentially the questions I want to get to the bottom of um, with the help of my speakers tonight is what is the media for? Are they doing a good job in this, during this pandemic, during this lockdown? And are the problems and the questions around uh, journalism and the media more longstanding than the last two months? Um, so I should have introduced myself before. Um, I'm Ella Whelan. I work with the Academy of Ideas uh, and the Battle of Ideas Festival, but I'm also sometimes a media commentator, um, a columnist for the online magazine Spiked, um, and a member of their uh, podcast, the Spiked Podcast, as well as appearing on various TV channels. So um, I'll raise that as a, I am a member of the mainstream media when they'll have me. Um, so <laughs> that's out there. Um, but, but my day job is working with the Academy of Ideas and especially of our flagship event, the Battle of Ideas Festival. 
More importantly, uh, I want to introduce my speakers for today, um, for tonight's discussion, um, who are all of them linked in some way to work with the press. Um, and though they, you know, experts is a funny word to use uh, these days and brings mixed reviews, but certainly they have some brilliant opinions. So um, I'll introduce the four of them and hopefully they'll give you a little wave if you can see them on the, in the sea of uh, now 152 people. So um, I'll start off with Freddie Sayers. Um, Freddie, here he is waving. Uh, Freddie is the executive editor at Unheard, an, an alternative news outlet, and he's also the CEO of Unheard Ventures, um, which is a brilliant online magazine at the moment, putting out all different kinds of um, investigations and reports and interviews um, with some of the, as it were, unheard voices in this discussion. Um, he's the former editor in chief of YouGov, uh, founder of um, Inconvo and Politics Home, so has a real insight into. Westminster politics and kind of the, the messaging and what goes on behind the scenes. So a very warm welcome to Freddie. Next up, I have uh, Daisy McAndrew. Daisy, give us a little wave. Um, Daisy is a, a freelance broadcaster who's um, worked for a variety of stations and channels, um, from talk radio and the BBC. Uh, and she's also the former um, economics editor at ITN uh, and the chief political correspondent. So again, someone who's really had an in-depth uh, experience um, in the world of the media and has a, a lot to say about how they're viewed. So welcome to Daisy. Next up, we have Jodie Ginsberg, who is a regular speaker at our Battle of Ideas Festival and a great friend of the Academy of Ideas. Um, but she's also now the CEO of Internews Europe, which is a, um, a new role for her. She was previously the CEO of Index on Censorship, which um, Jodie and Index on Censorship and Internews do a lot of work on press freedom, press regulation and freedom of speech. So uh, welcome to Jodie. Excited to hear her thoughts. And then last but not least, we have Claire Fox, um, who's there, going to give us a wave. Hello, Claire. Um, Claire is the director of the Academy of Ideas uh, and the convener of our flagship event, the Battle of Ideas Festival. Um, but she's also the author of I Find That Offensive, second edition, I Still Find That Offensive, two books, um, which were kind of key works on the issues of censorship and free speech and offence culture that's arisen as a massive issue of the last 10 years. Um, and she's also the longest running participant, a panellist on uh, the BBC Radio 4's Moral Maze. So a very well welcome to Claire and all of our speakers. Um, uh, we would usually clap at this point, but I don't think my technology can quite handle the unmute all button. So we can silently clap and welcome our speakers. So then uh, what will happen is I'm going to ask our speakers a few questions to start off with. Um, and we're going to have a get a conversation flowing. And then from there, um, we will do, do that for about 20, 30 minutes. And from there, we'll come out to you guys for rounds of questions and comments. And um, one of the key things about the Academy of Ideas is that our events are public events. And if anyone of you has been to the Battle of Ideas Festival, the speakers are great, but we also really focus around questions and comments from the audience. So let's get a lively public um, discussion happening. But before I do any of that, I just want to let you know that though this is a free public event and we're very happy to put it on, the Academy of Ideas staff and the small number of us uh, haven't been furloughed and we've been working uh, actually a lot more than usual, though we're always busy, to put on these kind of online public events, Zoom meetings, forums and salons, and you're very welcome to come to all of them. But if you enjoy tonight's debate, if you found it interesting, uh, please think about 
giving us a donation, however big or small, um, would be very appreciated. And you can do that by going to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate and give us the price of a pint or a cinema ticket or something more generous if you're able to in these strange times. So that's that. Now let's get started properly. So, and start off with you, Freddie. Um, the question I wanted to really kick off with is that there obviously there's a huge amount of criticism of the media at the moment uh, and it, it feels like this kind of almost cliche of the media being out of touch a click you know the, from the real fact of it always being uh, Hugh Pym, Laura Koonsberg, Beth Rigby, Peston the same names that get picked in these press conferences but more broadly there being a sentiment in the general public of the media being uh, somewhat out of touch and um, I mean what does that do for public relations with the media? How big of a problem is that? And what are your thoughts, Freddie? Um, thanks, Hella. Um, well, I, I think I should start with a bit of a confession, um, which is that back in 2008 to 2010, um, I was actually in the lobby. Uh, so the, the lobby is the kind of uh, holy of holies of the dark mainstream media uh, where they get together every day and they all live in the same office in the House of Commons um, and they generate their group think and they go to the same briefings and normally when people kind of point fingers at the mainstream media the political lobby is the kind of the worst part of it uh, and I was sort of pretty much deeply embedded in it for for two or three years um, and so I guess I, I can at least offer uh, some insight into how they think, um, you know, I think they're, they're overwhelmingly good people, um, you know, highly intelligent, interested, um, and I think they're sincere, actually. I think most sort of political journalists, you know, they might be cynical and gossipy and, and so on, but actually they do think they're doing a, an important job and, they, and they're quite, you know, if you get them onto that topic, they're really quite passionate about it. The problem, I think, um, is what they see, what role they see that being. You know, what is the basis of that virtue? Um, and I think, you know, having, having, having spent all that time with them, it's what makes a story, basically. And the, the fundamental attitude is that uh, a story is, is if you catch the government out. I mean, I, in, in a normal peacetime environment, um, if you can prove that a minister is lying or get one part of the government to contradict another. Um, you know, if you can criticize and catch out the government, you've scored a hit. Um, you then get a big splash on the front page, all of your media colleagues uh, give you a slap on the back. Um, and actually, if you manage to get someone sacked, a scalp, as they call it, uh, that's kind of extra points for that. Um, so it does feel like we have we've got used to a kind of a sense of what the purpose of the media is and they they would call this scrutiny um they call it you know uh, holding the government to account is the the phrase that that you'll normally find and obviously that is a good thing to do um it just often feels and i think during a, a crisis like this that you know it's not quite equal to the times basically um you know since this covid uh, story has kicked off in the past month or two um, it feels like the media hasn't got in general hasn't got the right kind of um, framework to be dealing with it they seem to oscillate between either this kind of 
peacetime mode that I just talked about, where you want to kind of prove that there's been sort of provable negligence or um, some kind of deliberate bad thing that someone inside the government has done, because then you'll have done a good job and, and, and held the government to account. Or occasionally they've been slipping into this uh, other mode, uh, particularly maybe the BBC and the kind of big broadcasters who really feel like they have a kind of particularly uh, a sort of grand role uh, in terms of looking after the health of the nation. Um, and that's when things suddenly get really serious, like at the very beginning of the coronavirus story, or for example, when uh, the prime minister was taken seriously ill, um, and then suddenly you get a kind of 24 or 48 hour atmosphere where it, it changes and, and the media goes into a much, a totally uncritical, um, rather kind of pat um, atmosphere where they just kind of trot out these sort of affirming lines um, and don't seem to be doing anything that useful in that direction either. So I, I, I do feel critical of, of large parts of the media and I feel like during this crisis it has kind of shown that they're trying you know they, they want to be useful every day and that you know there's not that much happening every day so they're trying to kind of generate what the next story is but I feel like they don't they don't get the bigger sense which is that during a strange times like this where all of the normal rules are suspended um, people aren't that interested in just catching another government minister out or proving that such and such an action should have happened three days earlier or three days later. You know, this is a huge, unprecedented global event. Mm. Uh, everyone in their homes is asking, you know, when life is going to return and what sort of world are we going to inherit after this? And, and it seems like they, aren't, they haven't yet found a, a way of kind of addressing that, those kinds of questions. So I, I do feel critical of them, yes. Okay, great. Thanks, Freddie. That's really interesting. Um, so, what, and especially that point that you raised that it might be uh, the fault of the public um, for wanting those headlines, for wanting that splash, you know, what scandal is there um, this week that drives that kind of gotcha journalism? I mean, when I was trying to pick the playlist to lead you all in professionally to this meeting, I was looking for songs about the media and they were all negative and they were all about how, um, you know, oh, the journalists have got this splash again and so there's that kind of um, sentiment but thanks for that Freddie. I mean Daisy I'd like to come on to you uh, next and just ask you the accusation about there's this other side of the um, media that you know we we get told that they're too emotional um, and that they're it's sort of about what their role is in all of this because I know that I've been frustrated by the continual repetition of the stay home, save lives um, mantra, save the NHS. You know, however serious and important it is, it feels like every reporter has to front load their question um, or their report with that. And it feels like you're, as a, as a member of the public consuming the news, that you're just kind of being, being um, blurbed at and, uh, and it's, not, it's not a real kind of engagement. Is that fair? What's your, what are your thoughts? Oh, hang on. Um, you're you're muted, Daisy. Sorry. Go ahead now. ...that needs to be unpicked. And I I agreed with a lot of what Freddie was just saying. I also, as you said, Ella, in your introduction to me, spent many, many years in the lobby. And some criticisms of the lobby system, the parliamentary lobby system, are fair. And some are unfair, as Freddie said. You know, those individual journalists are, are good people on the whole. But I think um, that, you know, as the topic of the debate is that gotcha element, 
has definitely always been there, that wanting to get a scalp and that wanting to get yourself known or to get, you know, to break a big story. I mean, just going back to one of Freddie's points reminded me of, I was once the winner um, of a Royal Television Society Award for Scoop of the Year. And it was for destroying somebody's career. And it was one of the worst nights of my life, but I had to go up and accept it. And I had been asked to do that story because it was a true story. It was about Charles Kennedy's drinking. And because if I didn't, somebody else was already lined up to do it and my editor wanted me to do it. But it was a very good example of what Freddie was just talking about there. Um, and so coming back to today's issues about how it works and, how, and I think one of the important things is to differentiate between television broadcasters, uh, television journalists and written journalists because there are huge differences and huge different demands on them. And I think what's happening at the moment is uh, coronavirus daily press conferences are putting such a huge spotlight on the, the broadcasters, the television reporters, who normally, what's, what normally happens is that they have a 28-minute uh, news program to fill. If we're talking about terrestrial news, like I used to work on the news at 10 or the 6.30 on ITV and before that, the BBC. And of those 28 minutes, you as the political reporter might get a minute and a half or two minutes to shine and to tell your story. So it was all about squeezing a big complicated story into the most easy to understand, easily digestible chunks. Now, of course, that has changed in the present crisis. As you said, Ella, we're at home consuming a huge amount of TV news and we're consuming those press conferences. So suddenly we're all armchair critics of those press conferences and what's going on in them. And what you're seeing are things that Freddie and I and people who've been in the lobby have seen for many years, which is that a lot of press conferences are a total waste of time, particularly when it comes to the reporters who are reporting for the TV news, because one of the things they are most obsessed about is in effect doing a piece to camera. And what I mean by that is the bit, here I am, Daisy, reporting, here's my face on the telly. So the question that the reporter is asking is the one quite often that he or she knows there, and I'm sorry to get into so much minutiae on this, but I do think it explains a bit about the criticism that's happening. That question that we now, millions of people now see at these daily press conferences is basically so that that reporter can clip themselves up and put it into their two and a half minute package that's going to go on the evening news or the 10 o'clock news. Now, of course, that's, you see 10, 20 reporters all doing the same thing. You see how inane it is and how frustrated um, the politician, whoever it might be, gets in answering those. So I do think that's one of the problems with one of the kind of real details that's going on at the moment, where you see these reporters asking the same question over and over, and all they're really doing is, is filming their own piece to camera. Obviously, there are lots of other issues going on at the moment. As Freddie said, this is unprecedented times and the journalists don't have the answers and the politicians don't have the answers, but we're all pretending that we have the answers. We're all pretending that we can prove that a politician is lying to us or we can prove that the advice that SAGE committee gave the politicians um, wasn't taken or was the wrong advice, or we can prove that the politicians were going for herd immunity and then they realised they were going to kill tens of thousands of people and change their mind. In fact, the truth is none of us can prove hardly any of that. So we're scrabbling around trying to differentiate the story we have from the story that our neighbour in the lobby has, which is almost impossible. And I think then you have a problem with the newspapers. Newspapers are going bust 
so many journalists and people who work for media organizations have been furloughed or are facing losing their jobs. The newspapers, I think, are desperate to get a front page that might be picked up at the newsstand or might be clickbait online to try to generate some advertising. Advertising has fallen off a cliff. So a lot of these issues that are happening is pressure, I believe, from editors onto journalists, whether it's me, written journalists or broadcast journalists, to differentiate, to make a change, to make a splash. And I think that is very dangerous at the moment. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Daisy. That's really interesting. And I mean, that point about um, perhaps not, not quite journalists use, losing the spirit of what the calling of journalism is all supposed to be about, but that pressure, meaning that perhaps the value of actually reporting on a story and getting, getting the scoop has, has, has lost its sort of moral worth as it were in, and we all know about the effect that social media has had on this. And you mentioned clipping and there's lots of people who will bemoan the fact that the act of clipping has completely bastardized the process of um, getting news. So that's really interesting. Um, Jody, I want to come on to uh, you now and just uh, actually flip it and ask whether or not, um, you know, you can occasionally feel a little bit of a sort of Trumpite vibe going on in terms of, um, oh, you know, fake news, everything that is, you know, journalists are just up to no good and, and it's all spin. And, you know, how far should that be sort of pushed back against? Because of course the media does play an, an important role. And what does it mean for press freedom? Yeah, I do worry about that. And I worry about it for a number of reasons. So it's really interesting this, you know, we talk about the media as if it was one kind of lump, as if it's all the same thing. And I think that's really dangerous. There are some examples of really excellent journalism, which I'll come and talk about in a second, and some examples of, of poor journalism. But I think what we end up doing is sort of doing as Trump does and sort of lumping the media all together and suggesting it's all bad. And I think that does have demonstrably bad effects on the industry as a whole which I do think is good and important. It, journalists are absolutely vital in holding politicians to account. Are some uh, journalists not doing a very good job at the moment and in that? Yes absolutely but then there are others who are doing really really well and you mentioned a couple of really strong pieces from uh, Sunday Times and The Guardian. We've had examples of people like Piers Morgan really pushing uh, ministers to um, not, not try and get them, not try and get them sacked, but get them to own the policies that they are trying to put forward. And I think that's really important. We need that. So I think it's the first thing I'd say is really important to sort of not lump all journalism together. Westminster, um, the Westminster lobby is a particular bubble. And I think one of the challenges of the Westminster lobby, as Freddie was saying, is not just um, a particular way of thinking about how to secure news, but like any club, it, became, it can become quite insular and lose sight of the bigger picture. So what's important to what, what I like to call the politerati, both politicians and, and the Westminster journalists that cover it, often is much less important to people outside of that bubble. And I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. Um, but also, and Daisy mentioned a difference between newspapers and, and broadcasters but I actually think at the moment one of the things that I see particularly in this crisis is the importance of local media and, and when we brand all media as evil 
we forget that really vital role that local media play in not just holding local politicians to account, but giving us the information that we need to live our lives freely. So it's interesting to me how important really local and hyperlocal information has become globally in this crisis, because actually for many people, the big picture is important on a, on a macro level and a long-term level. You know, what is the government saying about the lockdown? But actually on a day-to-day -day micro level, it becomes much more important if your local supermarket is open or how do you get to Boots or is, your, uh, is there a service in your local community that will help you if you are self-isolating? Those things become much more important and they are the institutions that are suffering the most, whose advertising revenue has been decimated because the local takeaway is no longer operating, so is no longer taking advertising, who don't have a successful model for getting income from clicks. And those are the organizations that I'm concerned about if we exercise this kind of Trumpian smear tactic where we say all media is bad, we're going to end up hurting the most and who will not recover from this crisis. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Jodie. Um, and that's, uh, I think we need that to keep in mind that separation that you've talked about because, um, you know, thinking about, for example, my, um, my family on my um, husband's side who live in Devon have a completely different, completely different experience of the media to the, to the one that I do living in London is just, completely different. So those um, things need to be taken into account. Claire, I want to come to you um, next and ask you really the sort of one of the questions that's the, at the heart of all of this is um, what role the media plays um, because speak to one person and they'll say it's just about reporting what's happening. Um, another person and, and actually lots of quite defensive um, journalists, mainstream journalists, Laura Koonsberg, Emily Maitlis have recently come out um, against this statement on Twitter that was put out by someone called Konstantin Kissin, really saying, you know, our job is not to put a nice spin on things, but to put the government under pressure, to make politicians sweat and to, um, to give you that, that insight into it. But if that only leads to the kind of influx of the leaks and whistleblowings and, all, and the kind of gotcha moments that Freddie's talked about, does that leave any of us any better off? Hang on, Clara, just unmute you. Go ahead, Claire. I think it's one of the real tensions in this argument, and I'm not saying I've got the answer. I really would, I, I really don't like it when, if you criticize the media, the suggestion is that what you're saying is that the media should be softer on the government. I actually would like the media to be harder on the government, but in a more sophisticated way. And one of the things I think is lacking is more investigative journalism, which I think has been uh, not funded for many years. And we're seeing that a little now. And often investigation is made up of leaks and gossip and so-and-so said this to so-and-so instead of proper, good, old-fashioned investigation. Now, there's some of that going on, but... Um, what people are wary of is where they feel that it's bad faith investigation to attribute political culpability rather than to find out what's going on. So if you feel that the investigation is simply driven in order to get the political elite for doing the wrong thing rather than actually having an open mind and finding out what's happening, then that will maybe lead to a different kind of investigation. 
I watched the panorama last night on PPE and I thought that there were some very good parts of that in terms of investigative journalism, but it was packaged in such a sort of melodramatic worst case scenario way that it didn't actually help untangle who was responsible for what ironically it because it just became the government being problematic and now of course there is a gotcha the other way which is because the uh, medics who were interviewed were Corbyn uh, activists. I mean, I'm, I'm not making a comment on that, but because they all were, it just ends up being that somebody like Guido Fawkes can just say, we can now dismiss that whole thing out of hand, which I don't think we should. But I think it just indicates where people, it feels as though the culture wars has uh, affected uh, the media. And it doesn't, I mean, it's, they don't do themselves any favours when they, uh, I think lazily go to the just a, a particular group of people for their investigations. The other thing that just in terms of what they're doing or what the media should do, um, I, I was really struck at the beginning that one of the ways that the press conference went was not just that they were trying to hold the government to account, but they were demanding action from the government on very specific things. And I, I felt that that was a step too far. I mean, they were demanding that there was a lockdown. Now, I, I'm not, I'm agnostic on whether there should be a lockdown, but I, I was really struck by it was almost like a lobby group for a particular political position all the time. And as it happens, that would change every three days what the particular lobbying was. And they'd all lobby on the same thing, which, which was bemusing. But, um, it, it, you know, it was kind of, why have you not locked down? Why are the pubs still open? Why are there people mixing? Why are they? And that didn't feel to me as though it was investigative, more a political position. And I think that that demand for action is a more attached form of journalism that I'm very wary of for a start off. It's ironic, actually, because that initial focus on bringing about the lockdown, ironically, took the eye off the care homes and the particularly vulnerable elderly people. Now there is a focus back on the care homes and the journalists are saying, if it wasn't for us, you'd have forgotten the care homes. Whereas actually, I think that they forgot the care homes because they were jumping from one thing to another in a kind of campaigning sort of way. So I, I, I get worried about that. Um, and then I suppose my final thoughts are that um, you mentioned the, 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 the comedian Constantine Kissin's thread. I mean, never has a thread on Twitter caused so much of a fuss. I mean, he wrote a thread. An indication of that it had a resonance was that it was, you know, in Twitter terms, went viral, liked by, you know, 11,000 people or something, everybody quoting it, people saying, spot on, you speak for me. And then res was responded to by very high profile media figures. But what one of the, the things that struck me was that um, Ian Dale, uh, LBC uh, presenter, actually made a point that, you know, he thought that journalists ought to reflect on why there was this collapse of trust in journalism. And he was then attacked by his colleagues in journalism. And Adam Bolton actually said, Ian Dale should not pander to the populace if you want to be taken seriously. And I thought that that was a very unhelpful remark because that would indicate that journalists themselves are tone deaf to the criticisms. Now, I, I don't think there should be happy, jolly stories and that every media outlet should just spout media, uh, sorry, government propaganda or not be critical, the very opposite, in fact. But I do think that journalism has to reflect on why it is that there's a, not a populist, 
but a popular disillusion with them. And there's a certain tone deafness there. Now I'm going to say something that will be like populist and, and no doubt, but you know, I think we did see it in the Brexit debate that the media appeared to be very far removed from the concerns of ordinary people and that, that, that people felt that they were being uh, treated with a certain patrician condescension by the media class. And I at least think that the media needs to reflect on that. And the defensive way that they responded to that Constantine Kissin uh, reaction would indicate that rather than trying to think, can we improve up our game, that that causes some problems. Uh, I, I will clarify, however, that there are, as Jody has rightly pointed out, many elements to the media and for example, I think some science journalists have been utterly fantastic. Some, some brilliant uh, uh, writing has been done in newspapers and I've watched some fantastic uh, TV things. But, but, but there isn't, the public aren't wrong to feel that there's something gone wrong with journalism. That's what I'm saying is that popular revulsion at what's happening in the media has to be understood and taken seriously, not just dismissed as the plebs not getting it and not understanding. I think that's an important, if, if the media is going to improve, that's an important thing that it needs to, to do is to be much more self-reflective. And then I think it might actually be better at its job and better at holding the government to account. Because if you lose trust in the uh, media as we have now, people will look to alternative news sites. Now that's great if they look to Freddie's Unheard and Freddie and Unheard have done, no, but they've done, it's not to just, I mean, we invited you on because you've done some fantastic stuff and your two interviews have been rightly credited as being, you know, objectively fascinating to introduce to interview without uh, a chip on your shoulder to completely conflicting views. People learnt a lot from that. You know, that's serious journalism that takes the public seriously. But it's also true that if people become disillusioned with mainstream journalism and the media, that they can go into the rabbit hole of conspiratorial websites and all sorts of nonsense. And that is dangerous. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. um, I want to come out to the audience in a second. But before we do that, um, Claire's helpfully raised the issue of Brexit. And it's important to remember that we having this discussion about the media long before coronavirus was ever a word that we were all accustomed with um, and you know thinking about the hacking scandals the issues around the Leveson inquiry and questions about how free the press should be and the brexit debate in which if you were if you were a lever you were convinced that all the media were remainers and if you were a remainer you were convinced that all the media were levers and do i even need to talk about the issue of bbc bias i mean you pick your side both sides are completely convinced left and right that each one controls you know the purse strings and the channeling uh, organization of the bbc so how far is this what i'm sort of asking is a rather dire question which is how far does uh, not the rock go, but does the problem go? Um, and is this something that we have to look at much more deeply rather than it just being a question of the, the press conferences? Um, Freddie, why don't I um, come back to you guys, but I've unmuted all of you. So if anyone wants to um, jump in at any point, but Freddie. Um, thanks. I, I, I just, I mean, I, I feel like um, Claire uh, got quite close to it there uh, towards the end. This, this question of just treating people more like adults um, I think is really at the heart of it um, and actually you know I in order to make sure I was fully prepped for this discussion I 
I listened to the 5 p.m. briefing, that kind of like Groundhog Day painful thing that we now go through every, every afternoon. And it's almost like watching a kind of like elaborate dance between, you know, two sets of people who, who know the steps very well. Um, and you've got Matt Hancock, who actually, ironically, is really a, a, a child of Tony Blair. I mean, th those kind of team George Osborne, you know, they grew of age in the Blair era. And they, they still refer to him as the master or the maestro. Uh, you know, it's, it's that very careful, every single sentence tilted to defend a position and communicate well. And then the questions come back. And someone actually, I forget which journalist it was, but they said, now, this isn't a gotcha question, mm. but uh, would you like to take this opportunity to apologize to the families of people who died in care homes? And, and he sort of responded, well, of course, and, and you just, I think people watch those press conferences and just think, this isn't a real conversation. And this, they managed to give it the atmosphere of sort of exposure whilst actually ignoring the much bigger and harder and more interesting questions, which people realize are actually going on here, which is like, you know, how what, is the lockdown necessary? How much long can it go on for? You know, how many deaths are, you know, would we tolerate? And all of these much harder questions, which you never hear mentioned. So I think feeding the mic. I was, going to, Freddie, I was also going to mention Tony Blair. It must have been um, <laughs> in, in both of our minds. But actually, a lot of the current relationship and the way the lobby works and the way mainstream media works and the way that politicians react to us in the media does all go back to that introduction of spin doctors, as we, you know, we called it, which was very much um, the you know, Tony Blair's government that did that and it really did change everything because it then from that moment on journalists felt that they were being sidelined and they were being sidelined by spin and they were being spun a line and so therefore our role as journalists was to unpick that you know spinning that was going on and to get you know beneath the bullshit and all the rest of it and so there's this constant tension there where we journalists are thinking well he's saying x but is he is he meaning y Added on to that, we've now got journal, you know, the politicians, like Trump, of course, being the master, but our own politicians, who've decided to bypass the journalists completely. And we've seen that in the last few months when this government said, we're not gonna do the lobby briefings anymore, or we're going to reduce the power of the lobby, and we're going to talk directly to the people. But of course, talking directly to the people very often means just tweeting our side of the story and hoping that that's the message that gets through. So you can see why you've got this gotcha versus, you know, here's the government's line. Today we are going to parrot out the same mm. sentence and that's the one that's going to, to get through. So you can completely see where we, we are, why we are where we are, but not quite how to get to what Claire was talking about, of talking to people like grown-ups, uh, you know, not regurgitating the same old stuff every day every day Do you not think, i think something really interesting has happened actually uh, in the in this um in this period which is we went through this period post-brexit where people sort of said oh experts and groaned and something very interesting to me actually has happened during this whole period which is you've got a group of people who aren't particularly well uh, trusted or liked by the public so that's journalists you know 50% a study came out today from the Reuters Institute saying 57% uh, of people rate news organizations as trustworthy sources of coronavirus compared to 38% of um, politicians right so journalists not particularly you know reasonably well trusted in coronavirus but generally not 
well trusted or liked overall, politicians even less. But what's interesting to me is, is the elevation actually in this case of experts. So suddenly Chris Whitty becomes a household name and you know if you were watching last night on the grace and perry art show everyone was drawing pictures of of chris witty you know he's become and suddenly i think people are realizing that um you know we do the, the importance of experts and, and understanding what how expertise is derived and delivered now one of the things that i think is a challenge for journalism is to have people who know what are the right questions to ask. And sometimes that means you do need somebody who, for example, understands what are the key questions that you might want to ask about the science in order to understand the bigger picture as it impacts us. And certainly, you know, I was a, a journalist during the financial crisis. And one of the big problems that we faced in the run up to the financial crisis was just not enough people uh, in, the, in the media mm. understood the complexity of the financial system. So we were not asking the right questions and so i am i am concerned that we don't in introducing this idea that we can have some of the public ask questions and may what they may well ask the questions that the journalists aren't asking and they may ask some of the right questions but we also need people who have expert knowledge who can really dig in do the investigative journalism ask the tough questions and sometimes that requires having expertise mm -hmm. okay great thanks claire um, yeah, well, just on that, first of all, this is a problem with the lobby journalists and with political journalists is they have got a certain arrogance within their own peers. I mean, they all work with very talented, very well informed economics journalists or science journalists, and they should go and ask them. And they don't. I mean, one of the things that drives me mad is, is that the questions are boring repetitive they don't i mean there's no there's no originality i mean I, I i mean why is it that everybody talks about ppe all at the same time and ask the same question so i actually daisy's explained why but what i'm saying is that's what people scream at the telly and groan about i mean it's not like there's not questions to ask i am terrified of the 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 tracking uh, what is it test and track chess and trace and the the use of technology what that's going to mean for privacy i know nothing about technology as anyone will know but i have read everything i can on that topic it's not exactly expertise but i have tried to inform myself of the different ways that you can approach this i would have thought that somebody might have asked the question instead they ask when will you have the test done well you know i mean ask a question that's going to move us on help inform people and move us on and reveal something and actually maybe get some answers that we might want to to understand so i think that's really important the other mm -hmm. thing is is that just on 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 what questions you ask that there has to i mean i do not want the questions to be public questions that is absolute rubbish right what i want is the journalists to be better journalists and that i suppose is where i'm most critical. I, I really don't think that they've done a good enough job in their own terms mm. of investigating before they walk in that room and asking questions that would really make the politicians sweat, which is exactly why, as somebody said, it's like a dance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a performance art and therefore it's in bad faith from everybody. I don't think that the uh, I, I don't I want the government to be held to account precisely 
and on minutiae and properly. And Claire, so what you're talking about is the lobby, right? You're talking, yeah. and that's what I just think we need to be a bit careful here because what yeah. ends up happening very quickly, is, Jody. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. What ends up happening is we talk about we're talking about a very specific group of people. Um, not about the industry as a whole. And what ends up happening is we talk about the media or MSM, which is even worse. Uh, and, and in doing that, we do damage, I think, to a really, really important industry. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Let's hold it there now from our speakers. And I want to turn it over to public questions, not vetted by YouGov or the government or whoever it is that's picking the, um, picking the ones that go on the press conferences, but vetted by me. Um, and that means that if you know me, I'm not going to, I'm less likely to take you because there's lots of people here who I have no idea who you are. Strangers to the Academy Valley is very exciting. So I'm going to prioritize people that I don't recognize at all. Um, and if you can keep it brief, I'm going to take five, four or five, and then I'll come back to the panel for brief um, responses to some of those. So um, I will unmute you and we're going to start off with Phil Angel. Phil. Hello, Ella. Um, yes, I was... Uh met a very eminent journalist once and I said to him what is news and uh, the journalist turned around to me and said well news is anything you want it to be uh, in which case it'd be good to hear from the panel as to what they want news to be that's a brilliant question thank you Phil we meet you okay now we have Jonathan Baz uh, <clears throat> thank you, Ella. Um, I want to pick up and put to the panel a tweet that Ian Martin of the Times put out at the weekend, which was referencing the poll from Sky News showing really level, low, low levels of trust in journalists among the public. And Ian Martin tweeted so arrogantly, soon these numbers will fall to match journalistic levels of trust in the public. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Max Anderson. All right, thanks, Ella. Um, I think, uh, Jody, you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about the lack of kind of um, science reporters. And to confess as well, I also work for a, a news organisation and know a little bit about science. And I suppose my fear is that it's not just that there's a lack of understanding, which means that people aren't asking the right questions. It's a kind of, it's a complete lack of understanding into into what kind of epidemiology is as a as a as a study you know these are these are models that are constantly updating and the sort of language that some of my colleagues use when they're talking about u-turns because uh, you know the government suddenly were presented with some new data and changed their mind well of course they did because they were presented with new data and so you have this kind of political language this scalping if you like which is being applied to um and, and, and I suppose that my fear of it is I think there is some great investigative reporting going on and my colleagues have done some of it. But, but I fear that, you know, there are points where the government need to be held to account. But by holding the government to account on all of these things that, that just shouldn't, you know, that you can't really be held to account because of the fact that this has been driven by epidemiology, you kind of cheapen um, the ones that, that are are kind of, have some sort of basis and and uh, and meaning okay great thanks max um i've just got a message in from the chat frankie o'brien says that wishes people would tell us the news and not their opinions which is an interesting point for maybe some of the panel to talk about in terms of you know there's there's an almost an obsession with objectivity whether we can be objective and um that has its pros and its cons so let's try josephine hussey joe I wanted to ask a question about um, if you were going to write a job description for a journalist, um, what would you do? Because um, 
Somebody said um, that um, journalists are too attached at the moment. So should journalists not come at things with their own opinions or should they go beyond their own opinions? Um, someone else mentioned that um, local news is good because they're information providers. Um, and, um, and then um, Daisy was talking about how in a way they're quite narcissistic because they have to be at the center of the story. And one thing that strikes me as somebody who watches the news is I get a lot, I get fed up watching journalists interviewing journalists um, rather than journalists trying to delve into a story. So it does seem to be quite narcissistic at the moment and should, should they be pulling back from that? Brilliant. Thank you, Joe. Right. Um, now I've got Steve, is that you? Hi. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm going to try and be sort of devil's advocate because I think there's going to be a great deal of agreement tonight really uh, not to be contrary but just to throw something into the heart really uh, first thing is obviously hopefully everybody here would defend press freedom that needs saying mm -hmm. um, I mean secondly I'd like to say thank you to Freddie I think his two videos with Giseka the Swedish guy and oh, sticking in my throat to say Ferguson's name but with Ferguson uh, really helpful um, and also the comments from Daisy and Freddie about the lobby system and how it works. You know, it's been quite helpful to understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think what Claire said really about Brexit is what I'd like to get into because we all tend to forget in this discussion that um, despite the media as it is and how it was in Brexit, um, the Demos basically ignored it, overcame everything, made our own mind up, so is it such a big problem? I mean, I'm being absolutely serious here. Is it such a big problem? Are we just whinging about the standards, which we expect to be quite low? These people are all brought up in the same educational establishments, work in careers with each other, periodically the same managerial class, the same media class. And, I, and I'd just like to finish very quickly by just finishing quickly. on a really positive note, Ella. I'm repeating what I said to you in the session at the Battle of Ideas, that... I think out of all this, we can be extremely positive. We have a media completely and utterly exposed. The demos don't really believe them. I mean, that's actually quite, I think, a positive situation to be in, mm -hmm. which means that we all have to support the tremendous independent media outlets that we've had, have had, and I think we should go forward from that. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Right, I'm going to take two more and then I'm going to come back to um, the panellists for their thoughts. So um, let's go with someone whose name is IJM. And if you want to, if your name is something funny because you've just done it automatically, change it so I can see what your real name is. IJM, fire away. Oh, thank you. It's, it's Ian. Oh, I'm not sure why it says that. Um, yeah, I just wrote out a couple of things here. Um, firstly, I can't remember who said it, but someone talked about the media as being uh, when the nation talks to itself. It, it just sounds like there are aspects of journalism that are talking within themselves with each other, but not really to the nation as a whole. Um, and, and maybe that's part of the problem that, that um, I mean, the, the last speaker mentioned about the, the, the maybe the elitist nature of a lot of people who work in the top end of media. The second thing I thought about was critical thinking, which it sounded like one or two of these speakers have already mentioned that is there an absence of critical thinking? Um, and is, is that something that's disappeared from uh, kind of public life generally and is particularly a problem with journalists that, that thinking critically um, is something that's not, not there as much anymore. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, 
and now Noah. Hello, um, good evening. I just wanted to challenge Claire initially on the notion that the uh, media were tone deaf to Brexit, given that you had the editorials of many uh, tabloids and broadsheets advocating uh, leaving the EU. Um, I just wanted to talk also about to what extent the panel think gotcha journalism has always been the case. If you think of the Fumo affair being exposed by the news of the world back in the 1960s, um, in the contemporary age, how do the panel think journalism can move beyond being based around clicks, likes, views, shares, and how can they recognise that the best journalism isn't necessarily what might be the most popular? Um, finally, how does journalism and the media more generally combat the intrinsic contradiction between organisations between being organisations that are meant to be about public service and informing the public, um, but also being about private organisations that are based around a financial profit? Thank you. Thank you, Noah. I've um, got some questions in from the chat. P. Glenn says um, she wonders if we'd be this divided as a nation if we hadn't had a five year period of insane political division. I think she's talking about Brexit there, which decimated public trust in government, media and experts alike. Um, and now we have one more question from Kim and then we'll come back to the panel. So if you've got your hand raised, don't worry, I'm going to do this as many times as we want to. So hold on, Kim. Hi everyone. Um, once upon a time I used to be the chief uh, comms lead for the chief science, science advisor about 10 years ago, a precursor to Patrick Balance. Um, and used to get so frustrated because we would be putting out science research to the media and would constantly find it reported in all sorts of dramatic editorial ways that simply weren't true. I asked a science editor once, one of the main papers, why that was and he said, actually a lot of science just really isn't that interesting um, and drama sells more than truth. So I'm wondering what the panel think about that. Is it the role of media to, to report truth even when it's a bit dull? Um, or should we be creating drama um, out of fact? Thank you very much, Kim. Right, I'm gonna come back to the panel now. Obviously, I don't want you to answer every single one of those questions because there's too many. But if you can just pick up on anything that stuck out for you or you want to make a point with Jodie, can I start with you? Pick out a few points. For me, news is something that tells me something I don't know, but I might need to know. Um, and uh, and I think that comes back to the last question about it is the role of the media to report the truth. Um, but the truth is a tricky and difficult thing and means different things to different people. I think it's incumbent upon journalists to report as accurately as they can. And personally, I think um, free from bias but that's because I'm a, a journalist who trained um, with Reuters news agency and that's absolutely sort of beaten into us from the beginning and it sort of makes my heart sink a little bit to hear so many of you talk you know I wanted to be a journalist since I was about this big and I watched Kate Ady on the telly and I thought that's what I that's all I ever want to do and you know this is the job I want for life and I loved being a journalist and I'm proud to call my journalist myself a journalist and it it absolutely breaks my heart to hear some of you on here sort of say oh journalists are narcissists and all of that interest lots of journalists never put their byline on the story um and and spend you know years and years reporting stories without any hope that they're going to get you know fame or glory and some of the best journalism has been that kind of investigative journalism that is a, a slow and painful slog without any plaudits at all i think some of the problems are are that in a very fast moving 24 hour journalism world where people are encouraged to think that there has to be something new all the time, that 
things tend to get presented as if they are new and exciting and and we've just broken an exciting story you know today boris johnson said this and he didn't say it yesterday and if you actually sort of took a step back and you looked at things in in the grand sweep of things these things wouldn't matter at all and wouldn't be important and i do wonder whether the result of part of um this being inundated with news at the moment is that we start to want a different kind of news it's interesting to me that increasing numbers of people are now saying they're actively avoiding the news because partly because for mental health reasons it's it's really tough but also just because there isn't anything new day to day and actually they don't feel the need to watch every single press conference and every single news bulletin and maybe we will move into an arena where we we are more willing to pay for and consume slightly slower news yeah yeah great and but just to put i'll add a point then the flip side i've had conversations with people who said you know all this they're very frustrated by the kind of don't terror scroll turn off the news you don't need to hear what's going on i'm thinking you bloody do carry on watching these you need to know what's going on in the world um all right freddie if i come to you next um yeah i mean i thought what was interesting is um there were quite a few quite um, philosophical or sort of existential type of questions in there, you know, about what is the nature of news, you know, how should we relate to science, um, you know, what is, you know, we're almost sort of getting into the nature of truth in this uh, evening session. Um, That's an Academy of Ideas crowd for you, Freddie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think what, what the, the impression I got from those questions is that, in a way, journalists and the media don't have the comfort of a kind of formal role in the constitution. You know, they, the, the politicians ultimately, we know what they ultimately do, which is they vote and then they enact laws. And that's the sort of, whether they can retreat back to their job and, and voters can vote them in or out at the end of the day. Um, whilst the media is this, this kind of strange half creature that moves between them. So I feel like um, trying to, trying to, sort of move between those different poles and trying to kind of represent the interests of the public which is this very you know contradictory and complex huge numbers of people and trying to trying to turn that into a daily story or a, a story that's digestible or meaningful so that we can have a conversation with ourselves is actually a very difficult job um and and i don't i don't take that lightly um i just feel like um it seems from these questions that they haven't quite got it right. Um, and actually just to, to append to that, a few of the questions referred to science and how, you know, how we should be relating to that. Suddenly the, the news is full of these complex scientific ideas. Um, and I think there's a danger in going too far in that direction also. You know, for, if journalists, if we suddenly throw out the political journalists and bring in the science correspondents and we then uh, are sort of living in, in a world governed by whoever the chief government scientist is, uh, just sort of neatly explained to us by science correspondents, that wouldn't be a happy world either. So um, I, I guess I felt a, a strange note of pity for the uh, journalists there after those questions, because they've got to constantly shape shift and make sure they're not in any corner too much. And they've got to try and kind of find a middle ground between all these different poles. Mm -hmm. Right, thanks. Claire, come to you next. <clears throat> Um, Steve asked, you know, does it matter uh, if the news is discredited? And of course it does matter because um, one of the things that the news does is it tells you what you don't want to hear and what you didn't know you didn't know. 
And, you know, I don't think I would have known about anywhere around the world unless I'd watched the news at some point. You know, I wouldn't, I need to, I, 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 as I was growing up, I, I might not have been interested in what was happening in Pakistan or India or different parts of the world, but I saw it on the news and it, and I thought, oh, I, maybe I should find out. So these things do matter. Of course they do. And even at the level that there was a, you know, there was a news night item on kids in care during coronavirus that I just hadn't thought about kids in care in coronavirus, if you know what I mean. And I, it made me think, and I, that's the kind of thing that is news. You know, it, 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 it tells you something, it gives you an insight that you wouldn't have. So of course it matters uh, at that level. Um, but that's not the same as opinion. There's nothing wrong with opinion, but the things have become confused. I'm not going to go into all that, but that people feel that the news has become opinionated, which is a different problem and, and something to untangle. Noah asked the question about clicks and quality and, and, and so on and the role of social media. I remember once having done a, a moral maze that I thought was particularly dire. Uh, that the producer said it was brilliant because we'd had a lot of activity on, on Twitter. And I thought, oh my God, this is Radio 4's moral maze. I hope no one's listening. Anyway, Radio 4's moral maze. And they think that what makes a good programme is how much Twitter activity it's had. But I myself, when I've written an article, if it doesn't do well on social media, I worry that it's not a good enough article. In fact, why would we judge quality on that? But we do now. And so that's had an influence, no doubt about it. And finally, quickly on the science question. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's not just a question of wanting to sort of sensationalize the science or, you know, that it's dull and so you have to make it exciting. I think that uh, one of the things that is tricky about science is a sense of uncertainty. And sometimes science in the hands of the media, and I know I'm using that general uh, term again, can try and make it certain and say, the science shows or the expert tells us. One good thing that, about what's happened in relation to coronavirus is that people now realise that when somebody says the evidence shows, the science tells us, here is the expert, that everyone will go, which expert, what evidence, what do you mean the science tells us? And actually that's an important insight because I agree with Freddie, we don't want technocratic news by science. Mm. But what we have to realise is that the media have to appreciate that we might be uh, or treat us like grown-ups and say certain scientists say this and other scientists say this and we're presenting it to you and you can now look at this and make some objective views yourself. Mm -hmm. Thanks Claire. Daisy any thoughts? from you? Um, Yes lots I mean I would echo a lot of what um, all three other speakers have said I think just on this issue of experts and, and science and the fact that a lot of journalists don't tend to know what they're talking about when it comes to science and I, I would agree with a lot of those uh, points and just a, a quick anecdote um, political journalists more than any are tend to be very broad brush because they have to be able to report on every element of politics which of course is every department so they have to be you know a um, very broad brush but very shallow knowledge and um, that's I certainly would have put myself in that category. I dropped out of the London School of Economics when I was 19 years old because I found economics very boring but I went to work in the House of Commons, meant to go back to university, never did, the rest is history. Now that is 28 years ago as I mentioned or as Ella mentioned I was the economics editor for ITN. You might think that's very strange. It was very strange. My editor, after my second baby, came back from maternity leave and she said to me, we'd like you to leave Westminster and to become, there's a big financial crisis looming to become our economics editor. And I said, that would be great. But I don't really know anything about economics because in fact, I don't think I've ever told you, I dropped out of 
the London School of Economics because I loathed the subject matter so much. And she said, that's fine, Daisy, because what you're very good at is explaining a very complicated issue in a simple way that our viewers can understand. And I said, yes, I can, if I understand it. If I struggle to understand it, I'm not going to be able to explain it um, to everybody else. Now, I tell you that, and I, I was still ended up doing the job because that's the job they wanted me to do. And I had to work incredibly hard not to show everybody that I really fundamentally didn't really know what I was talking about. Now, <laughs> I did learn on the job um, and I managed to get through it and I in the end found it fascinating and I was covering the financial crisis. But it comes back to the point that many people have made that a lot of people on the telly are talking about issues that they are not expert in. And I was one of those people and it was very uncomfortable. In some ways, it gives you an insight because you are in fact the viewer in a way trying to work out what's important and what's not important and you have to go and ask the experts to explain things to you as if you're starting from scratch but it is absolutely true that there's a lack of expertise in journalism and there's a lack of expertise in the house of commons and anybody that pretends they're an expert in a subject like coronavirus when they clearly aren't is full of BS. There was a few points about political bias that I wanted to pick up on as well. I've worked at LBC, I've worked at the BBC, I've worked at ITN, and people have assumptions about people's private politics. And a lot of those assumptions are incorrect. Yes, it was difficult to get a copy of The Guardian when I worked at the BBC, but people have made assumptions about my own politics over the years, which have nearly always been entirely incorrect. The other thing I would say, having, I've also worked for politicians, and the one thing I learnt when I worked for politicians is that most often than not, if it's a choice between something being a conspiracy or a cock-up, the truth will be that it was actually a cock-up and everybody assumed it was a conspiracy. Brilliant. Thanks, Daisy. Now I'm going to come back out. So if you want to have uh, ask a question, please raise your hand. Also use the chat for someone. Um, William Bodil has sent in a question about the fact that people are spending less on proper journalism because of the option of free and he says or oh, but lower quality alternatives um is if this is choking off incomes partly driven by reduction in quality what specific roles does the bbc have given that their funding is guaranteed by the license fee and is shielded from this trend so that obviously the license fee in the bbc as a state broadcaster has been a big question i also want to throw into the mix perhaps anyone who might someone might ask a question about this we've talked about the b word brexit and the c word coronavirus what about the d word diversity because that's been a massive conversation in the media we haven't touched on that yet um you know on the one hand questions about are there enough bame journalists are there you know is there representation of female journalists there was this you know big issue about the fact that there weren't any women cabinet ministers answering questions but there was certainly a lot of female journalists getting questions in but aside from that what about uh steve and some other people have raised the idea of the media being a click you know the fact that you might get a very diverse um uh, in terms of race or sex um media but not necessarily in terms of class or our background and how how does that fit into this discussion so let me kick it off with uh christopher james who's been had his hand up for a while chris obviously everybody has a um sort of view on like politics and everyone's got their own politics and political um angles um going back to brexit do you think with um you know with uh, with brexit and the election of trump and johnson do you reckon um that's seen a rising gotcha journalism where um I don't know, maybe people like journalists have, um, you know, had uh, political outcomes that haven't gone their way. 
sort of have a personal axe to grind maybe or like lobbies will have like an axe to grind with certain politicians and um you know they'll they just target them to try and um you know like maybe just get one up on them or mm-hmm. uh, to change election results um i'm not sure if that is something that's that's been happening i mean from an outside view i'd say that um you know i can i can see that's been happening but i uh, just wanted to know what the panel's opinion on that was thank you very much thanks chris um okay sam sholly uh hi um i've put one of i've got two questions um i've put one of them in the chat already pick your best one okay i'll do i'll do the latter one um don't you think uh people's perceptions of journalism are colored by it broadly by the journalists who are most visible so the big newspaper columnists um big tv presenters um big um big uh, commentators um how do you get the conversation onto people who are less known uh, who do fantastic work and to get people to sympathize with them so the people who work in the press agencies the people who work nights at the daily express who bash out six articles a night um you know it seems like they're never talked about in this conversation and they're not necessarily going to come out and give their own version of the story because they're worried about jeopardizing their own career you know if Piers Morgan comes out and says something about journalism he has contacts he has a big following yeah he'll have he'll get another job he can fall back on something if that if that um, night reporter whose first job it is in journalism is at the Daily Express has a problem they can't necessarily give voice to that in the same way. Mm-hmm. So how does attention get shone onto the issues that those people face? Because I think if, if, yeah. if, if their issues were um, highlighted more, then perhaps people would have more sympathy for the industry. Brilliant. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Jane. Yeah. So um, I thought the speaker just a, a while ago was great about um, the idea that the for a lot of viewers on broadcast media, it, it seems like um, the journalists do have an agenda that is a, a leftover agenda from uh, Brexit in that there's um, a big desire to uh, really kind of boot Boris where it hurts. And um, my feeling is that that's led to a kind of um, a trivial way of dealing with the corona problem. So. So many of the questions we get are like very short term um, and non-serious. And and I think the the journalists are underestimating the public because the public very often want a more serious and more nuanced um, debate. And what we see, and I don't think it's just about the uh, lobby correspondence and, um, you know, a statement of interest. I was a lobby correspondent and, and I worked in the um, policy unit of the BBC. I, I, what, I, what I see from the outside is, is a level of um, having skin in the game from journalists. Mm-hmm. I don't think existed maybe um, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the public's very perceptive and that they see that. They see that journalists are, are kind of fighting yesterday's war through the coronavirus, and they don't want it. They want they want journalists to rise above that. And 
I know there's a big sweeping generalizations. Um, so, you know, I want it to be taken in, 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 in that way that, that, you know, it's not all journalists, obviously, but there's an element of that. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you, Jane. Um, right now I'll come to uh, Chinzia. Oh, so Claire Fox mentioned opinion journalism and I just want to ask the panel, what do they think of Auntie uh, wheeling out Emily Maitlis to tell us off for our language? Uh, uh, we got a telling off last week over fighter and uh, over our nanny and grampies and hospital, not, you know, they're being fighters. What on earth were they thinking? That telling us for is it um, because we're all in it together that they've decided that they've realised they don't like working class language because if you go to our graveyards that's that's what's on our our nanny's grave or our grandpa's he was a fighter I don't quite understand why we're being told off for language when everyone's you know very ill and dying brilliant in thank care you. homes great thanks Cynthia uh, now I'll come to Chantal Heaven. As somebody who's taught politics at privately now one-to-one -one because it's not on mainstream in schools, I mean, I think, I think if I moved to the southeast, I could probably teach A-level politics. It doesn't exist where I am in Somerset. And I'm struck when I teach one-to-one -one, um, history, which I can do, um, the intelligence of the questions. Um, by the students. And everyone now is asking me, what's your opinion, Chantal? And I sort of think, well, I used to have broad mainstream newspapers, and I would be able to say, go and read the Telegraph, go and read the Guardian, and you will find journalists who have a variety of views in both, but don't be surprised if socialist views appear in the Telegraph. And the opposite in the Guardian. You might have, if you've gone back 30 years ago, you might have had a Thatcherate view and I in a Telegraph. And I feel that now both um, those two main newspapers that I just single out seem to be far more pressure groups for one view rather than another. And what I would like now is an acknowledgement that the readers would like to have broad-based discussion and we aren't necessarily tribal. And the students I teach aren't tribal. They aren't, they, if I say, and I would always say to them, well, read this article and I won't tell them who it's written by. Who do you think wrote that? What do you think their actual value system is? And I'll say, mm -hmm. like, well, you're a, you, my uncle's um, a socialist, but he's French. What do you think the socialist view of national, national health service is? Or is there such a thing in France? And they'll think, and they'll think, oh my goodness, I didn't realize there wasn't a national health service in France. And these kinds of questions don't seem to be acknowledged on the part of the people in the journalists, uh, mm -hmm. in mainstream uh, media. And I want to know what the, whether the professional people on the guard, on, on your panel actually are aware of that change, because I've seen that. I'm 54 and I really see a change. Great. Thank you, Chantal. That's a brilliant question. Thank you. Um, right now, I will take two, three more, and I'll come back to the panel. So, Carlton. Hi there. Um, it's it's a kind of questiony point. Uh, it was just on the treating people like adults. Um, I get slightly worried when people start talking about treating people like adults because we've just had Nicola Sturgeon over the last 
couple of days saying she wants a very adult conversation with the Scottish people, but the Scottish people are the last people she wants to treat as adults. Because I think the kind of message is, underneath this, is that some people are more adult than others, and we'll have a conversation with them. And I kind of think that touches on some of the points that have been made in relationship uh, to the way the media works. And particularly, I think a couple of people have alluded to it, but haven't really kind of nailed it. And I just like their thoughts on it, and particularly the way that the cultural wars operate and the function of the media through how we position ourselves as consumers of the media, but also how the media position themselves as influers, influencers through the, 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 the cultural wars. Because I'm not really sure that particular section of, of the media are that worried that they're out of touch. They actually use that as a selling point, that they don't follow the herd, uh, that they're not in touch with the, with the majority view. So uh, I, I kind of think that needs to be perhaps if, the, if people could come back on that and the, the role of the, the culture wars in how we consume media, but also the way in which the culture wars influences how particular sections of the media work. Thank you, Carlton. Um, right, I'm going to come to Devi next. Devi? Thank you. I'd be interested in the panellists' views as to how this new culture of gotcha journalism is going to shape the politicians and the MPs of tomorrow. Are we going to end up with a state where we've got people coming into politics who've got absolutely no past and are afraid to, afraid to say what they think and just constantly sort of regurgitate party lines? I'm a local councillor and I'd love to have a political career. Uh, further you know building on what I already have but I I, I made the, full, the the fullest of my teenage years if the media wanted to dig up scoops about me I'm sure they could and I also appreciate and enjoy the freedom to be able to say what I think and then change my mind or look at something again and I, I fear that if I were to, to, to enter sort of politics on a national stage um, I'd, I'd just be torn to pieces by the media. Hmm. That's a brilliant question. And um, uh, Fallon Glenn has just uh, asked one in the comments saying, has got to journalism ruined accountability because now every attack is meaningless. And I think those are linked. It's like, you know, if people's, I mean, God forbid anyone finds out what I did in my teenage years, but it's that kind of, um, that if people are afraid to speak because of the desire to um, dig up dirt, how does that affect actually getting to a kind of meaningful news reporting so um thanks for that debbie right i'm going to take dennis russell and then i'm going to come back to the panel so dennis i, I read an article today in the in the guardian um, i'm not particularly a guardian easter but i thought it was a fabulous article on the international scramble to get hold of face masks and and melt blonde the material that's make made them out of and what struck me about the article was that in it she was the woman who wrote it samantha subramanian she was um she was analyzing the nature of, you know, the contemporary market, how it's working, the free market, you know, a kind of a much broader view, uh, take on the whole question of international relations, you know, reflected through this desire to get hold of PPE and all the rest of it. And uh, it, it kind of brought it home to me that the, the problem that we have with journalism today reflects the fact that there is little or nothing in politics for them to get hold of. Uh, in a sense, to be able to sort of raise the questions about what is the nature of our society? Where are we going? What are the, pro the problems that we have with Corona and how they're reflected in the fact that 
you know, our society has particular problems. Like, for example, when Rishi Sunak came out at the beginning of this, um, you know, um, um, pandemic and made the point, oh, we're in such a good position with our economy. The fundamentals are so sound that we're going to be able to cope no problem with this, with this, with this coronavirus. I mean, that was a total lie. The dogs in the street know that the British economy has been on its knees for years and years. And yet nobody challenged it amongst the journalists, the journalists involved. And, you know, PPE is a big question, but I think PPE, and what I'm referring to is PPE in the government, the politics, philosophy and education course that they all seem to have behind them from Oxford or whatever, has produced these kind of people who, uh, who are quite adept at dissembling and sort of, you know, and getting away from answering journalists' questions because journalists themselves pose their questions in such a way as to allow the politicians to use their you know, fine erudition and so forth to just deflect and, and sort of dissemble and mm -hmm. uh, make it seem like they've answered the question. It's just, it's just not working. Uh, if we're going to have any way of um, bringing home the reality of what's happening in our society, journalists have to be prepared to dig much, much deeper than they do. Okay, thank you for that, um, Dennis. Right, I'm going to come back to the panel. And I really, because I, there's so many people who want to um, raise their hand, uh, who want to ask a question, I really want to keep this brief. So um, if we start, Daisy, if I start off with you and literally just a thought, a few, you know, a few sentences. So there was quite a lot of um, different comments from different uh, people about uh, journalists and their own opinions and allowing their own opinions to come through. Somebody mentioned, I think it was Chinzia mentioned, Emily Maitlis and what do we think of that? And earlier on, um, I can't remember if it was Claire or somebody was talking about the Ian Dale kerfuffle, uh, where he had said, you know, that he agreed that um, some journalists need to think about how they are uh, representing the national mood. And I think one of the problems, personally, I did not like the Emily Maitlis monologue at all because in my mind and maybe I'm old-fashioned on this if you're a journalist you don't give your personal opinions away I never did when I was I don't think now I'm freer to say what I really think because I'm you know I'm now more of a commentator broadcaster and I can pretty much say what I want but I didn't appreciate that the Ian Dale thing is interesting particularly I mean I've done a lot of work for LBC and talk radio and you're encouraged on those radio shows to be very opinionated and so when Adam Bolton criticised Ian Dale, it was because Adam Bolton is behaving, you know, saying as a journalist, you shouldn't do that. And Ian Dale isn't a journalist. He's a radio presenter. So there are a lot of changes, a lot of differences there. And I totally agree with Debbie. Uh, this point about gotcha and uh, particularly younger people having their social media poured over for any gotcha. I was... I was asked to, I was forced to ask David Cameron if he'd taken drugs, but I was the first journalist to ask him when he'd become party leader. I didn't like asking him. Again, it was one of those things that my editor was asking me to ask it and therefore I had to, which I know makes me sympathetic. But I think this is a real problem because we're going to end up with such boring politicians with no history at all and no experience of the wide world. We've talked about diversity. We're going to have no diversity of politicians if we continue to scrape over everything they've ever done in their background and use that as a gotcha. So I totally agree with you, Debbie. And please continue with your political career. Yeah, I would. Um, can I come in there, Ella? Yes, please fire away. Yes. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, and De Debbie, you should definitely carry on with your uh, political career. You seem good at it. Um, I don't think anyone will care whatever uh, stories you're worried about. Um, and I think we've got to mention Donald Trump here because 
uh, like him or loathe him, he has changed the whole kind of concept of what is acceptable. Um, you know, I think across the world, kind of colourful, politically incorrect, inappropriate characters are winning office. So I think even from four years ago, it's a completely different world. And that sort of colourless, uh, technocrat style of politician, they're not winning anywhere right now. So um, I think in a way, there's some progress on that. Um, just a, more broadly, this whole question of politics, you know, is it, does it basically all boil down to, to Brexit and a you know, kind of liberal left cultural elite still sort of fighting the last war and cross by that? I think you, you can't deny it to some extent. You know, th we, we, at the start of this discussion, we talked about Tony Blair and how a lot of the current crop of both politicians and journalists basically came of age during that era. And that the whole world that he kind of sat on top of um, throughout the 90s and the 2000s has now kind of fractured and is crumbling. And Brexit and Trump and all of these events have, have changed everything. So I think in a, in a kind of broader sense, there is a real feeling that these, these kind, when you see the Adam Bolsons, the Robert Pestons and the same kind of cast list, it feels like they're characters from a world that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I think we're going to see huge changes in the media uh, I mean, you know, Unheard is just one of these, but, you know, we're getting huge amounts of traffic suddenly, and we've got 10 times the traffic than we did a year ago. And I think there is an appetite out there for different kinds of media organisations. So I think on a positive note, I think it's happening. Great, thanks. Um, Jodie, any thoughts? Yeah, just quickly. Um, somebody asked right at the start about media income, and I think it is something that we need to be aware of. It's being massively, uh, in, totally decimated. So Internews works with media organisations all over the world. And right at the beginning of this crisis, we launched a rapid response fund to help out all sorts of journalism organisations that were suffering. And what was particularly worrying was um, media that has worked really hard to become independent and self-sustaining in places like Eastern Europe, where it is really necessary to be able to stand up to uh, the growing authoritarianism in places like Hungary and Poland, is being wiped out financially. And so we do need to find models uh, where we can really invest in the kinds of journalism that holds um, the powerful, the politicians to account, um, whether that's through microfinancing of clicks because we're clicking on everything via Twitter or whatever, we we've urgently need to find new ways of investing in uh, the media. Um, I had a slightly different take on that whole thing around gotcha journalism. I, I think part of the problem is that there is a certain strain of journalists who will go for that gotcha thing. I think actually the thing that's putting a lot of, of uh, people from standing for public office is much more the idea that they will be subject to massive social media pylons, which is not necessarily anything to do with mainstream media. It's the ability that we can all now have to act as journalists, dig stuff out about people that we don't like, and then encourage others to um, abuse them on social media. So I think some of this, some of the time when we're accusing industries, you know, we're saying politicians are all the problem or journalists are all the problem, we need to have a bit of a look at ourselves and see how we're using some of these tools as well. Great, thanks Jodie. And Claire? Um, I think that um, Sam made a really useful uh, point reminding us that behind the scenes there is a whole load of people who are journalists who are not celebrity journalists who actually go about constructing newspapers and creating the news that we watch but i do think that what he draws attention to is the fact that what is highlighted is celebrity journalism and i do think that that's a problem but i i've just it's not just a bashing of celebrity journalism i 
I, I think that there's something about the way well-known journalists have taken it upon themselves to be like the political opposition. And I do think that's different than holding whatever politician is in power to account. They've taken on a role. Now, that's partly because the political opposition has been pretty weak. So, you know, you can say that there's a gap in the market. But I think it does create a sense of self-importance, which I think they do need to attend to. And I think in that sense, my criticism is still that they're both campaigning and over-politicised, um, but, but not self-critical enough. Having said that, I also think that, as it were, we, the public, are also got to kind of up our game because people have asked about the culture wars and I think Christopher James's point about Brexit and Trump, that's definitely how people feel. But it, re it really does drive me mad when people use the media to just signal where they stand on things. Um, Jody, you said you hate the phrase MSM, but it does work on Twitter when you're trying to fit in something. And if you use the phrase MSM, you get accused of being a Trumpite. But I it's even the Telegraph article, which was A, failed because it was in the Telegraph, and B, had a particularly unhelpful headline that somebody made up. But everybody who complained about it hadn't read the article. Now, it just seems to me that you can't criticise the media if you actually don't read the content of the media and simply use it as a virtue signalling tool yourself. So I'm making the point that both sides of this argument have to get better. But I, I, I don't want to let the media off the hook here, even though we've all keep caveating saying, oh, not all journalists, not all. There is a trend here where the public have lost faith in mainstream media and the mainstream media, I do not think, is as good as it was and for whatever reason, it needs to get better if it's going to be able to do what it needs to do, which is to retain the trust of the public. That is a very important thing it needs to do, not by pandering to the public, but actually thinking about itself more. And I don't think it's doing that enough. And, and Claire, I just wanted to pick up on that. I think Jodie, Jodie, very no, quickly, very. Okay. Quickly. I do think because we didn't really answer the question. I do think it's important. I think that diversity point is really key. You know, we don't have enough different journalists from different backgrounds and that doesn't just mean um bma or um lgbt it also means having people from different classes different regions different areas because that means that you're just bringing a different viewpoint to um to what you cover mm -hmm. great great point and um, but to add i'll come back out to the audience now so anyone who wants to ask a question raise your hand and um, but add on to that jody it was funny i remember it there was this sort of row that happens that sporadically happens about journalists being all from the same background or going to oxbridge and that kind of thing and then suddenly on twitter you had this kind of like is it the four yorkshireman sketch where every journalist was coming on twitter saying when I was a kid and you know, I came from, and you just think, oh no, that's not what we mean either. So yeah. <laughs> there's different sides to that. Right, okay, let's take um, Mo Lovett. Uh, just two very quick ones really. How much do you think journalists have become unable to resist the culture wars? And is that pulling this kind of um, uh, divide over gotcha journalism? Um, and um, my second question's completely gone out of my head, so I'll just leave you that one. I'm really interested in how much journalists sit on either one side of the culture war and whether or not that's informing this debate. Oh, I know what my second one was. How much has lockdown affected the quality of journalism? Because presumably they're not able to get out and about um, uh, uh, and kind of do the research that they would do in normal times. They're stuck in a, even more of a bubble. That was my second one. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, now I'll take your enjoy. 
Um, so a question to the speakers, how would you diversify journalism as a career? As a career, Because as someone uh, who started out on the course as well, just comments about different viewpoints, something I noticed that there's almost a lack of conversation almost um, and reflection even on my course and for the lectures about why journalism is so untrusted. And it's something that's not been brought up once in the entire year um, that I've been here, well, now stuck in Sheffield. Um, but go back to the first question, how would you suggest that uh, the media does diversify? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, right, I'll come to James Woodhausen now. Um, just on the current situation on broadcasting, I think we notice the political evasions by politicians, the PPE factor, but we also notice, don't we, the journalistic omissions? You know, it's, all, it's always about negative news. It's not about the death rate going down or anything like that. All the international comparisons are only broadly in one direction, which is we're shit. Uh, and therefore, I think the public notices that. You know, they don't like the polls. They don't like uh, the journalistic omissions, the lack of balance uh, and so on. Now, the main point I wanted to make is this one that we keep coming back to, which is, uh, you know, not news, but opinion, uh, tribal pressure groups, uh, and so on. I think there's two things going on there. The Blair era is important, um, not least because in 1995, Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence was published. And I think it's very wrong to underestimate the influence of that book and that uh, later Clinton era, because emotionalization of the NHS, and especially NHS victims, has this means of uh, closing down debate, where if you don't go along with the NHS uh, narrative, you know, you're, you're off the scale and can't be uh, part of that. And I think uh, a second influence post the Blair era is coming on to science, is that we should remember that climate change in 2008 was when the new scientism came in, which wasn't the old Cold War scientism, but was the new scientism, which is broadly the IPCC and what it says we should do, not just what it observes, must be right. And I think uh, that's a very important legacy from the, the last peak. It'll come back on climate change. Just to conclude, uh, on the science thing, I think, you know, for once I'm coming out in favour of citizen scientists because uh, checking science correspondence if you take Tom Whipple's report uh, on the Times, 8th of April, on fashion, uh, he said Swedish scientists, they weren't scientists. They weren't Swedish. Uh, and, you know, it's a really old story. If you take Graham Payton on the Times, 21st of April, he said that CO2 on our roads had dropped 20%, and electric cars were responsible for that at 2% of the market. How can that be? So not only is the mainstream journal, the PPE factor, knowing nothing about science, it appears our science journal, he's the science correspondent, don't know much about it. I think what's at issue here... Very is, quickly, James. Yeah, that we, we don't know much about ventilators still. And a whole new generation, just to go to Jody's detail point, Rula Kalaf on the FT, Emma Tucker on the Sunday Times, um, Ian Katz a bit a time ago on Channel 4, they've taken over the reins just recently... They want to make their mark in a declining market and therefore a cavalier attitude to science is one of the things that, were, you know, they're too hasty to want to take it seriously and they employ the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Thank you, James. Right. I'm going to come to uh, Jake Puno's had his hand up for a while. Jake. 
Thanks, Ella. Um, Claire talked about uh, populism at the end of her opening remarks and talked more recently about the loss of faith in the institutions of, of you know, of media. Uh, it goes back a long way in the press in this country. It actually goes back to Millie Dowler. So it goes back a long, long way. And people with long memories have not and will not forget that. Just wanted to focus on the lobby, particularly because there's a couple of people on the panel in the lobby. It necessarily must be a bad thing because it's anti-transparency and it empowers the wrong people because it's not empowering the voter, it's empowering the press. So I have a specific question. Given that, should it be made illegal for politicians or political advisors to, do, to give off-the-record briefings? Politicians have parliamentary privilege to protect them. They should not be allowed at the same time to give off the record briefings. Okay, great. Thanks, Jake. Right, I'm going to take just a few more and then come back to the panel. So I've got Valen. So Claire talked about critical thinking. And I wonder if the fear of looking stupid, it's become kind of sacrilegious to confront the party line. So there's lots of fringe conspiracy theories happening out there, but you know how, how necessary is isolation? Um, looking at the government's socialist bailout, what uh, what kind of austerity are we going to be plunged into after this? There's lots of false death counts coming up, uh, deaths being attributed to coronavirus and later being found out they were heart attacks or had nothing to do with it. That kind of stuff plays into the hands of people who are really nervous about these numbers, nervous about uh, whether we're being lied to. So should it be, um, should journalists be sort of be more confident to, to question that party line? Brilliant. Thanks very much. Right now I've got Alistair Donald. I think the, the anti-media mood just now is, is quite worrying. Um, and I was a bit worried that uh, a lot of this discussion would just be about bashing journalists and bashing the media. So it's been quite refreshing, I think, to see uh, lots of interesting and quite complex questions being raised. Um, I'm not sure that we've answered them all, but I think there's lots that, that we could look at over the next period. Um, the, the, the thing that I really wanted to say is I, I really don't think we can underestimate the problem of the vacuum of politics in this, in this whole discussion because I, I, I spoke to a journalist a, a, a few weeks ago who was um, making the point that he thought that good journalism will change the world and he was entirely honest in his uh, in his aspiration it's quite you no know, it's not bad aspiration to think that you can have a role in 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 contributing to uh, the process of change but the thing was that what and, and what he didn't get was that uh, in the absence of politics and proper political opposition that journalists too often are drawn into the arena of acting as the substitute for politicians and i, I think it really undermines uh, the possibility of good journalism. I think you really saw that in the Panorama program last night, where uh, it's almost like the headlines uh, come before uh, the content of the program. And I think we really have to uh, work out a way of getting past that. And it's why, why I'm so um, pleased to see uh, Freddie and, and her do those very uh, detailed half-hour interviews. And I just wonder, uh, as a kind of closer question, um, it, what what everybody on the panel has, uh, what thoughts they've got as to how we go further in, in uh, reinvigorating the world of the media. Brilliant. I'm going to bring the panel, thank you for that, Alistair, I'm going to bring the panel back in for minute contributions because we've, we're quickly running out of time. So just a thought and then I'm going to come back. Everyone who's got your hand raised at the moment, I see you, you're going to be um, brought in, but let me just go to our panel very quickly. Um, Jodie first. Okay. 
Diversity, the question that was asked before, I think um, news organisations have got to get much better than this and the diversity programmes that we have um, at the moment largely aren't really fit for purpose because they don't um, have a wide variety of backgrounds. So I think as Ella pointed out, they're often not looking at sort of class background or, or having different kind of levels of experience. So those programmes have got to be much better and they've got to be much more accommodating of different people's needs. Often what they do is sort of have these huge diversity schemes and say, come and you can apply and then you expect you, they expect you to be able to afford to come and live in London by yourself. They don't accommodate the fact that culturally you might find working in these newsrooms a challenge. Um, I think there's just got to be a radical rethink of, of the way in which news organisations actively seek and support people from diverse backgrounds through the journalistic process. And that includes taking people who've come straight out of school, frankly, and haven't gone to university. Mm. Brilliant, thanks. Daisy? Um, I thought um, Jay, well, everybody had brilliant points, but James is particularly the, um, the weird shit point I really, really liked. But the thing that I particularly wanted to pick up on was this idea um, of emotional intelligence, but also the NHS being the holy grail. And this is one of the things that worries me most about the coronavirus story. The thing when I was talking to politicians, I also want to talk about votes, because nobody's mentioned the fact that politicians fundamentally chase votes. And that is one of the reasons why journalism can be very, very difficult, because politicians will say one thing in private and they will say another in public. And they will particularly and have always done this about the NHS. And it's the thing that's always driven me mad. They will say quite bluntly in private, the NHS needs radical reform. But because they know it's a vote loser, because the NHS has always been the holy grail, and I'm sure that Freddie would back me up on this from a sophology point of view, they will not criticise the NHS in public. So one thing in private, and this one thing that really worries me about coronavirus is now the NHS is even more haloed and worshipped and the holy grail and i just worry that when the inquiry happens or during this course of events the nhs will not get any criticism and that does concern me with and the journalists i think play along with that um, but lots and a, a quick question that i know was directed at me about the lobby should it be made illegal to be off to do off the record briefings almost impossible to enforce and how do you make sure that whistleblowers continue i'm sure jody with a you know, censorship background would um, have thoughts on that, but how do you continue? How do you make sure that whistleblowers can continue to blow the whistle if you make off the record briefings illegal? Brilliant, thanks. And I mean, just to add into that point, what we've spent a lot of time criticising media and asking them to get a little bit more serious. I also just want to make a stand. I don't want us all to suddenly turn into sort of moral purists. I mean scandal and gossip and um dirt digging has its place i mean uh, we all do enjoy it and also it does have very important it plays important roles because it's it's not unheard of that something that's the maddest conspiracy theory or bit of gossip turns out to actually be true um so let's remember that okay freddie um any thoughts yeah i thought um that uh, we just mentioned the the weird shit uh, point uh, um, to do with all these international comparisons. You know, everyone's obsessed with these charts at the moment that are, you know, the competition is who can produce the chart that shows how the UK is the worst of all. You know, if you produce that chart, you've won. You kind of go home feeling good about yourself. Uh, I'm half Swedish and actually spend, you know, make sure I read the Swedish media. Um, and that is one of the things that does seem to be particularly British, actually, because Sweden is not exactly known as a huge jingoistic kind of country. It's, you know, neutral. Everyone has nice things to say about it. But they do stick up for themselves. So suddenly they've got this quite different 
strategy when it comes to coronavirus. And their papers are full of kind of how other people might be wrong. And, you know, I read this morning, there was a story about how the Italian media is mischaracterizing the situation in Sweden. I thought, you'd never see that mm. in the UK mainstream media. That there is a sort of some kind of embarrassment about former strength or something going on that we basically must never be seen to say anything good about us in comparison with other countries. So I do think, I do think you're, you're right on with that one. Okay, great. Claire? Um, Alistair asked a question about... Um, you know, what would we like to see? And I think the popularity of long form interviews in podcasts and so on that predates the coronavirus issue would indicate that some of the kind of short, sharp assumption that people have got the attention span of a gnat type journalism is misplaced. And my theme of being underestimating the public, I think is really true that we've got to kind of give people more credit and I'd like to see that more. And I think then you'd have less gotcha because you'd have, you could actually give people time to answer questions and let them hang themselves if you want, but more just let them answer the question. I think that would be a positive thing. I, I definitely don't think we should make uh, um, um, uh, off the record briefings illegal. I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one for rolling back laws, not, not in any way uh, um, introducing new ones, particularly in relation to press freedom. And I think that my fear is that some of the tenor of the debate, the popular debate at the moment that's anti the media could lead to a kind of Leveson too, as Ella I think said at the beginning and people calling for more regulation and more censorship and I am anxious about that, which is why I want the media to up its game, not turn on the public, but realise that what's going on here is an important thing to confront. But that in a way sums up what the person who's asked the question about, you know, there are kind of conspiratorial murmurings or there's kind of populist murmurings or there's murmurings about, is this a con and is the lockdown, you know, just taking our rights away and maybe it's not as it seems. And I don't like conspiratorial thinking, but I think an acknowledgement of the fact that there's a lot of views out there that are not being reflected would actually help give a sense of diversity not in terms of who we've got but just to indicate that there's a range of people saying a range of things and that you should take on board that it's not just there isn't just one answer to how you solve coronavirus and there's not just one theory and that we have to indicate that we know or that journalists have to indicate that they've got their ear to the to the oh, their finger on the pulse Great, thanks, Claire. I'll come back out now. Noah has written in the comments, just to read it out, that ironically, the rise of instantaneous 24-7 news has driven appreciation for you know, the value of long form. Um, and he says, the public wants and desires in-depth, rich, accurate coverage, all part of the Enlightenment project, which is as relevant today as 300 years ago. So thanks for that, Noah. It's a brilliant comment. Right. Uh, we're in our last round of questions now. So if you do want to ask the panel something or make a comment, now is your time. Raise your hand or alert me in the chat. We'll go to David. Uh, I guess a couple of points. One is, is there a problem with the structure of the media? So if you think of the big broadcast journalists, big broadcast organisations, BBC, Sky, ITV, Channel 4, there's only four of them. Essentially, it's an oligopoly. So there's not a lot of room for um, diversity of opinion. Similarly, in newspapers, there's you know, essentially the Murdoch Press and a couple of others. Um, what is interesting is that there is a rise of what you might call alternative media, which I've put spiked in there, unheard and so on. Um, if there was more investigation by the competition authority, maybe the media needs to be broken up to essentially address the problem of lack of diversity of opinion. It's not that we've got a, a lack of gender, you know, the, 
-hmm. you know, gender is well um, represented, BAME is well represented, sexuality is well represented. It's not a question of those things that we don't have enough diversity of. It's that we don't have enough diversity of opinion. It seems as though the lobby has essentially a very narrow um, set of opinions which they view to be acceptable and you mm. can see that in the way just in the way they ask questions and so on um and they are not open to um a a, a, a what, how should i put it a broader overton window of things that are acceptable to discuss mm -hmm. I mean, and it's notable i mean i don't necessarily want to sort of blow smoke at you but it's notable that the there's a sort of a lack of what i would call thoughtful independent thinkers on on the broadcast media, people like Claire and you, Ella, you're sort of the exceptions that prove the rule. Yeah, I can think of perhaps a few others, I won't name them now, but who do get on the media and they're very interesting when they're there, but then mostly it's sort of like bland newspeak. Oh, okay, thanks, Dave. Thank I'll you. take that. Yeah, I would say flattery, <laughs> it's not entirely true. Um, okay, now I've got just, I'm not, I'm afraid I can't take people who've spoken already. So sorry if that's you, um, but I'm going to take Joel, then Rosie, and then we're going to come back to the panel. So, uh, Joel. Hi, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, and I, the, the moment that's really caught my attention in the very recent past isn't from the UK, it's from America, um, where Donald Trump suggested maybe bleach was a great, here for coronavirus and that was obviously bullshit um but then the same news outlets who reported it as a great um scandal either from a pro-trump position or from an anti-trump position have then also started reporting the inevitable follow-up which is um reports of people phoning health advisory services about whether or not disinfectant is in fact a cure for coronavirus and it made me really think about whether or not we should try to reclaim a sense of responsible journalism. Oh dear, we... Which was that, you know, if it's really not worth a story worth telling, if it's not going to help us pursue the truth, actually, does it really matter what happens in the palace that day? If Trump's saying absolutely nothing, is it responsible journalism to report it and i think actually lots of whether it's long form or short form or whichever way we want to describe it there are some nice qualities that have really come up in conversation here but we probably mean the kind of journalism of integrity that's mm. maybe worth reclaiming from the previous leveson version of it which mm. was responsible journalism is definable we should mm. have laws actually do we want kind of responsible editorial outlook and a responsible public begging for it Great. Thanks, Joel. Um, just before I bring in Rosie, MB has asked in the um, chat, which links to what Joel's just said about, is there a crony gotcha journalism aspect? I'm just talking about the fact that it seems to be journalists seem to only go for certain politicians or um, treating them like celebrities. And it's not not so much in the fields of economics or opinion piece journalism. So is there a kind of cronyism going on there? Um, and then I'm going to finally take um, Rosie and then we're going to come back to the panel for very, very brief comments. Rosie, off you go. Uh, yes, we've heard a lot about different um, prejudices, biases, which we suspect that, you know, media class all think the same. I think one of the things that um, hasn't been mentioned um, in 
within that framework is they do seem to be particularly into uh, ghoulishness, um, a focus on death. Um, and I don't know whether that is um, just something that um, they almost can't help because that's uh, culturally what we're like at the moment is we are quite focused on the worst cases and a sort of apocalyptic um, view. But that, that means that they don't even um, look properly at the death figures. You don't have to be a science journalist uh, to go and read an ONS report and say, actually, there's only a certain percentage of these, these mm. deaths this week that are actually COVID related and the rest are all down to other things. But they won't even do that basic work when they report on the deaths. And I and I'm that uh shocking disheartening um but i think there is a sort of ghoulish tendency now i know there's always been some sensationalism yeah um, and, and i don't you know i know we can have the variety we should be able to cope with it but it just seems to be a preoccupation at the expense of other things brilliant Thank you, Rosie. Right, I'm going to come back to the panel um, in the same order that we spoke at the start. And I literally only have a minute for you. So leave the audience with your main point of tonight. Let's start with Freddie. Uh, well, my main point tonight is thanks to everybody because I thought they'd be really, really great questions, a great group. Um, it's just a shame that we can't all go to the pub and have a pint afterwards, which would be much more fun. Bring on the day that that is uh, once again possible. I guess I would leave with an optimistic thought, which is we are actually winning this battle. You know, the, I find if, I've only been at Unheard for, for 12 months and already I feel there's a change. You know, we get constantly contact, got the controller of Radio 4 called up, like, cool, can we do a collaboration? And, you know, people reading up from Sky News. I think the, the big mainstream media people are feeling actually a bit on the back foot already and they know they need to... Look. I think one of the big problems we've got in media is that you're always looking for balance, but it's often phony balance. So you're looking for a hard Brexiteer to be balanced by a hard Remainer. And actually, the truth is somewhere in the middle, and those are phony. And, and you can see this with coronavirus. And short-termism is my other big problem with politics and journalism at the moment, which is we're much more concerned with tomorrow's COVID death um, statistics than we are thinking about the overall death statistics about how many people are going to die of suicide or cancer or stroke and all the rest of it because one is an easy headline and one is an easy gotcha um, uh, you know point to make and the other one is much more nuanced and much more long-term and difficult to portray and that's been a big problem with modern journalism whether it's talking about health pensions economy whatever brexit whatever it might be and I do I would love to see or hear an answer to that but I don't have the answers to that and thank you for having me Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Daisy. Jody. So, David, I don't think we're going to solve the diversity of opinion problem with structural competition commission interference. What we're going to do is the only way to happen for that to happen is people have to stop hiring other people in their own likeness. You just have to force ourselves to think differently and pick people that perhaps we disagree with. Wouldn't that be radical? Um, Joel, I really worry about government regulating for responsible journalism. That sends shivers down my spine. I, I wouldn't want us to go down that route. And finally, I would also finish on a positive note, which I think lockdown is forcing us, actually, ironically, being in our houses might be the best thing that happened to journalists because they're forced to think differently rather than think like a pack. And I think that's really good. Brilliant. Thank you, Jodie. And Claire. 
Somebody described uh, the, uh, the the mood in relation to those press conferences as a bit like uh, assuming that we were interested in palace intrigue. And I do think there is the problem that Jake alluded to about the uh, lobby journalists feeling like there's a club that you're entering in. And I do think that's very, that's not, that's not done journalism any favours. But what I'd like is, uh, as people have indicated, a, a, a diversity of opinions. But I think you have to, un I do think there is a problem, which is, is that there is a tone of discussion in a media class that just assumes that there is one way of seeing the world and that a lot of people don't get it. And I think they've got to have a bit more humility in relation to the fact that maybe they don't get it and that there might be uh, other opinions, but there, that is a, a truth. Or just on the negative versus positive, I, I think it's not, you know, they keep telling, I hate the worst case scenario stuff, I, I, but I don't want positive, happy, good news, you know, to replace negative news that would you know, what's that? It's nonsense. But I think what is the distinction is good faith versus bad faith. And at the moment, I feel as though the worst case scenario gotcha is bad faith journalism. And if you felt that the journalists were genuinely asking questions and investigating so that they could elucidate the truth, that would be that would actually reassure the public and that would allow the journalists to go much harder on the politicians, actually, if they believe they were doing it for the right reasons. Right. Thank you, Claire. I'm now going to unmute you all. And could you please join me in? I've muted you all again now. And, um, and what I want to basically say is thank you to our speakers and thank you to you guys for in the audience for those really excellent questions. Um, you can count on an Academy of Ideas crowd to put some seriously difficult philosophical questions as well as some tricky political ones to our speakers so thank you very much um for me anyway as a journalist it, the one thing that i think just for my two cents is that it's the journalism and the media are nothing without readers and nothing without a public and one brilliant thing is that jesus there's pressure being put on uh, both politicians and journalists to like to come up with the goods and that's you know if you've the stats for the press conference are in the millions eight million watching a day and um, people are reading the news more this happened in brexit and that's a great thing because it means that we've got not only a next generation of new journalists and people in politics but people who have opinions and aren't afraid to voice them so you've displayed that tonight and um, i think that's something that should keep us going the only last thing to say from me is um, thank you. And a final plea and ask if you've, like Freddie said, we can't go out for a pint. I'm going to go downstairs and pie my, pour myself a pint of wine. Um, but if you imagine that we might be in the pub, go over to the Academy of Ideas um, website, click on donate and give us the price of a, of a London pint. Um, if you can, because this helps us keep going our forums, our salons. We've got an economy forum if you want to join up that talks weekly about issues to do with the economy. We've got a book club on the plague by Albert Camus coming up on this Thursday at seven o'clock, which is free um, and you're all welcome to attend. Um, we've got discussions on an education forum. There's a salon in Liverpool. There's a salon in Birmingham. We're all over Zoom all the time and we'd love you to join. So sign up to our newsletter, which is on the website if you can give us a donation and thank you again for a really enlightening evening i really enjoyed it and um we'll see you again soon if you'd like to attend future salons forums or debates head to academyofideas.org.uk and check out our upcoming events and if you enjoyed that discussion 
How about giving us a donation? All our online events during lockdown are free, so we're counting on your generosity to keep us going. Thanks again, and stay tuned for more from the Academy of Ideas.